is sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The mother of all rallies tonight inside of the Amway Center. 45 Fest begins. The doors don't open until 5 o'clock, but there are already hundreds upon hundreds of people queued up waiting to get in, many of whom camped out in their tents on the sidewalks around the Amway Center overnight. I feel it's important for us to give back and support him because he's there to support us. We're here to support Trump. We love our president. Support the greatest president of all time. He's going to be uplifting to us and you know we all anticipate that he will be announcing officially his run for 2020. Four more years! And now, Stacey Washington. Four more years! <laughs> well, it sounds like a little bit of Trump enthusiasm has infected the populace and oh yeah, we like it. We like it a lot. I love it when He can turn out a crowd of 100,000 when Democrats are turning out crowds of 90. So uh, I like the way that sounds. I'd like to see more of it. And it's going to be pretty exciting to watch all this unfold, all this activity. Meanwhile, here in uh, Stacey on the Right Show land, we have a fantastic program planned for you today. We're going to be chatting with two wonderful, well, obviously we have Hans von Boskowski coming on later on this week. They're actually going to be in St. Louis. Um, Hans is going to be joining the program on the 19th, which is tomorrow. But today we're going to be chatting with John Davidson. He is a senior correspondent at The Federalist, and we're going to be chatting with him uh, about the border and the volatile history there. Because liberals would have you believe that the border has always been this peaceful, orderly place where migrants, not illegal aliens, migrants have, you know, crossed because of love and because of other things that that basically are unicorns and puppies. And that's just not the case. So we're going to chat about that with him. We're going to talk about Mexico stepped up's efforts to uh, get people who are in their country illegally out of their country without having them pass through to America. Um, Also, we're going to be chatting about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas asking the Supreme Court to overturn what he calls demonstrably erroneous decisions. And uh, I, this this is kind of important because he's a Supreme Court justice, and he feels that it's time to start like it's, it's time to start putting the ship back to rights. I think it's overdue. Um, I, I'm surprised it's just him that's calling for this. Where are the other justices? Are they just asleep at the wheel? What like why aren't there more of them getting together in their conference and saying, "Look, this is unconstitutional. This goes against what the founders intended for Americans, and it also makes." A, a perversion of justice, the standard of the day, which has to be something they're in opposition to as Supreme Court justices. So we'll discuss that as well. Um, and I want to I want to dig into something today, uh, overarching thing for the show today, that the media is consistently downplaying the Democrats, uh, the, the ones who are running for president, their extreme proposals. So we're hearing less and less about the things that they've proposed that are extreme, like Medicare for all. We know for a fact that with our budget and and our deficit that we are on a runaway train to obliteration the end of the United States as we know it if we don't address our unfunded liabilities which are Medicare and um Medicare and Social Security we have to raise the Social Security retirement age to 70 and we have to start that move immediately it's at 66 right now we have to increase it incrementally so it doesn't harm people who are currently entering the system, but future 
users of Social Security have to be on. You have to be knowing that you're paying into it, but there's no guarantee it's going to be there for you in 20 years. If you're 20 years away from 65, 66, you have to know if there's a possibility it won't be there. So instead of us saying, you know, look, we what we have to do is increase taxes on the young people. Like, let's take, for example, living in this house, you know, living in your house. Let's say through no fault of your own, because we don't want blame to be a part of this equation, you suddenly can't afford to live in the house that you're in. And in, consequently, you are looking for ways to either bring in more income or reduce the costs elsewhere so that you can afford to stay in the house. And after you've run the numbers every which way from Sunday, it just won't work. Do you then go to your kids and say, every kid has to get a 40-hour-a-week job so we can stay in this house? Or do you put a for sale sign out front and sell it and move into a house that you can afford? I, I rather think you'd be doing the second one. So the idea that we have to increase taxes, so a lot of policymakers are saying new entrants into the workforce, so anybody who's working now and new people would have to have their payroll tax increased to 33% to keep the current levels of funding because we're paying money in. All of us are paying money into Social Security, but the money that we're getting back out is far greater than what we've paid in. It's not properly invested and it's not profitable. So the idea that we're going to you know, basically say to the kids, look, we need to stay in this house. No, we need to sell that house and get into one that's more affordable. That means reducing the amount of benefits that are available to people, making it closer to what they've paid in. You paid in this amount, you're getting a return on your investment of this little paltry three or 4% because the government's no good at investing money. And now that's what you get back out. That reality would cause more Americans to say, you know what? I don't want any of my money going to the government for my social security. I want to invest my own money. I want to be in charge of investing my own money so I can get a return that makes sense. And if that was happening, then I think uh, people would definitely be, uh, there would be a, a change in the way we think about these things. And that's only one proposal. The Democrats are also proposing gun registration, uh, gun confiscation, um, free college. Because if you know if it's free, then its worth goes down considerably. Basically, a college education will be worth nothing if college is free in this country. Now, the college that you still have to pay for, because there'll still be paid options, that'll be worth even more. Instead of increasing competition and, and looking for ways to stabilize the system, the Democrat candidates for president are proposing ideas that not only are unworkable, they cannot work, even in a utopia they can't work. And we know this because... If taxing rich people to pay for the care of, of poor and indigent people and homeless people worked, why isn't it working in California? Look at California. It's run from top to bottom by the Democrats. They have a stranglehold on all of the mechanisms by which you can get elected anywhere in California. They have the highest population of homeless, the highest population of illegal alien residents, and the highest taxes. And they're still not solving their homeless problem. In fact, their homeless problem is exploding under the rule of the Democrats. So everybody would know this if mainstream media would just say, hey, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in addition to saying that uh, President Trump is maintaining Dachau and Auschwitz type concentration camps on the southern border, in addition to her saying that, um, and we need to hold her accountable for that, right? They're not going to. But in, in addition to them talking about her saying that and then demonstrating how historically inaccurate that is, how that comparison won't hunt. They should be talking about the proposals that she has put forward, the Green New Deal, um, Medicare for All, 
just keep going. Let's talk about those proposals. Let's talk about how they either work or don't work, how they're funded, instead of papering over it. But they're not going to. So one of the most important announcements, I think, for this week, which I, I'm 50-50, or maybe I'm 60-40. I'm 60% in the camp that I wish the president hadn't made the announcement that he was going to live tweet the Democratic debate. Now, I'm over here in live tweet veteran land. I have live tweeted debates since I got a Twitter account. And it's always super fun to do because you have to, you have to go fast. You have to compose your tweets and get them out quick and try not to have any typos. Um, and you have to catch the moments where they've said things that are really news. And sometimes in the midst of tweeting, you're not sure if it's news or not, but you just in, in your ear is like, that sounds like something like what, what did he just say? Or what did she just say? And so you live tweet it. The president has announced that he's going to live tweet the Democrats first debate where they'll have 20 people. So each person's going to get basically 45 seconds worth of time to talk unless the debate is like five hours long because the questioners have to ask the moderators have to ask the questions. But what's funny about the entire thing is that in live tweeting the debate, the president will be able to circumvent the mainstream media's continuing. It's it's like a campaign for them to clean up and mollify these policies that the Democrats are putting out. They have to rely on the mainstream media to clean up their statements because they're saying things that are just pants on fire crazy, like bullet train to crazy. Not even bullet train. Like what's faster than a bullet train? They're, they're on high speed rail to crazy, just, just crazy, the proposals that they're making. So they're, the fact that they're proposing these wild and crazy things and that the media feels the need to paper over it for them and kind of whitewash what they're saying to the American people also points to yesterday we mentioned the polls showing that uh, four or five of their crazy candidates, um, Nick and Poops Incorporated, they're all ahead of the president apparently in the polling. Remember they said President Trump had a 1% chance of winning? Well, Newt Gingrich had some things to say about that, about President Trump's re-election prospects. And I thought it was pretty interesting. Here's that audio for you. It's number five. Well, I think it's tough, but I think when you've had 92 or 93 percent negative press coverage, the very fact that he's still standing is sort of a miracle. And of course, part of that is that he has had a remarkable economy. People, I think, give him large credit for job creation and for wages going up. Uh, at the same time, He's met what he promised his conservative back people uh, he would do. He's, he's been very good on judges, very good on deregulation, very good on tax cuts. So he's going to have a fight. It's going to be very tough. But as Scott Rasmussen pointed out this morning, exactly on this date four years ago, uh, Donald Trump was at 1%. And 67% of the Republicans said they'd never vote for him. Now... Hmm. This is a great campaigner. Uh, I think that he believes he's going to win. He believes it's going to be a fight to the finish. Uh, but he also believes, I think, that the Democrats are pretty weak. And I'm inclined to agree with him. I think the Democrats could stumble into a disaster uh, if they're not careful. And that's what, what, obviously, that's what I'm hoping for. But that's, that's the thing that is, is so, so, again, I'm going to apply some logic here that may not be appropriate in light of the fact that I'm talking about the Democrats, but bear with me. 
they already saw what happens when you allow the mainstream media to put their wishes and hopes and unicorn fancies out as news. They knew in their heart of hearts that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president of the United States because what other result could be fair and right in this world? In the known universe, there could only be one option, and that was Hillary Clinton. There's no way that Donald Trump, after saying the things that he said about illegal aliens and the border and, um, you know, whatever, there's no way he could beat Hillary. Hillary was unstoppable. She was preordained. She said she was born to be the United States' first woman president. She was born to step into that role. Now, again, that could have been the truth, but obviously it wasn't, and she wasn't put into the presidency, and part of that was because she believed the hype just as much as they did. She saw the polls that showed that she was winning no matter what. She saw the the reasoning behind... um, the methodology. She saw a lot of different people saying a lot of different really interesting things about her and her candidacy. And so she went with it. Now, what's funny is, you know, they have this play on Broadway about the Clintons and it's actually closing early, which on Broadway and off Broadway shows, a play closing early is basically an announcement of a failed play. Um, they're, they're, and it's, it's embarrassing, but that's what's happening because the Clintons have served all of the possible uses that they could have served, they've, they're, they're, they are no longer influential. And so they're over. And so it's, it's just interesting to hear uh, people kind of, obviously we have the ability to say, um, you know, what happened on this day four years ago? What happened on this day three years ago? When, in the 2016 election, we know what the polls showed. We know what, we know what the talking head said, but, but what exactly brought on that it's an extended death march that these people have been on for the past two and a half years. And they haven't moved through the stages of grief. They've just been in denial the whole time. Denial and angry refusal to accept, which they call the resistance. We can go back and we can see exactly what it was. It was that they were set up by their own media to believe something was impossible. And when that impossible thing happened, then... They were left with the pieces, just, you know, shattered pottery to try to put back together without even so much as super glue. That was their psyches. They're just literally broken. And they're setting themselves up for a repeat of that. 100,000 people, most of whom are now in tents waiting to see the president tomorrow versus 90 people for Joe Biden. When we get back, we will have John Davidson. I've been leading tours to Israel for over 25 years. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. I started going to Israel with my dad in the 80s and uh, learned how to lead tour groups. And so been doing it ever since. And now my wife has joined me, Allison, and we love taking folks who support AFA and listen to AFR to Israel. And we'd love to have you come along with us as well. That's in March of 2020. We're letting you know ahead of time because we know that people need as much advance notice as possible to get ready for a trip like this. So if you want to go with us to the Holy Land in March, go ahead and get the information at twholyland.com. That's twholyland.com. 
All the information on the March trip to Israel is posted there and hope you can join us. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. For years, I served on the staff of Crew. In the summer of 2001 at our staff conference, Steve Douglas was officially installed as the second president of Campus Crusade for Christ. It was a moving time. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, charged Steve to be true to the mission and calling. Then the leadership gathered around Steve and his dear wife, Judy. We placed our hands on them and we prayed that God's favor and blessing would rest on them. Not too long after that, Dr. Bright went to be with the Lord. But that was a scene I'll never forget. David experienced something similar in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here David passed the baton to his son Solomon. Listen to these words. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going to the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Essentially, David charged Solomon with three things. Number one, David made Solomon understand it was his time. Number two, David challenged Solomon to be a man. He said, show yourself a man, Solomon. Don't back away from the challenges. Now is the time for you to exercise and demonstrate courage. And then number three, David charged Solomon to stay faithful to God. Well, here's what I want you to remember and do today. Are you investing in the next generation of leaders? If not, let me encourage you to do so. Give them what they need in order to be effective when you're gone. Thanks, Crawford, and thank you for listening to today's Legacy Moment, a production of Moody Radio. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey there, welcome back to the program. Don't forget to go to onenewsnow.com and stacyontheright.com and check out the content that we have for you. We'd love for you to subscribe and check us out on a regular basis when you're surfing the web. All right, um, now it's my pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. It's John Davidson. He's a senior correspondent at The Federalist. Thank you, John, for joining us today. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Hey, so let's talk about this. You got... Um, a bunch of really great information, lessons from the border's volatile history. So the mainstream media would have us believe that the border has always been this peaceful, beautiful place until Donald Trump showed up with his hate and his, um, you know, his, his xenophobia. And now that's why it's so volatile. And that's why there are concentration camps there. And we've never, ever had a problem with the Mexicans maintaining their side of the border before. What's the truth? Uh, the truth is it's never been secure. Uh, you know, we have this 2,000-mile border with Mexico that we got when Texas um, became a state uh, in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, when the Mexican-American War ended. And what we got with the end of that war was this 2,000-mile border that nobody knew whether or not it could be defended, whether or not it would ever be secure. And for most of the history since the end of that war, it hasn't been secure. And it's been a source of instability. It's been a source sometimes of violence. And it's taken different forms uh, over the years at different times and for different reasons. Uh, but the idea that the border is, uh, as you say, you know, this peaceful place or that 
only became a chaotic and volatile place with the Trump administration is simply not true. That's not what the history shows. So what's the answer? Because I know previous presidents to Donald Trump, and, you know, this hasn't been recent, but um, it has happened. It is historically accurate to say that former presidents have actually sent American troops into Mexico to secure the border. we've, We've operated our military in their territory before to secure the southern border. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And the most uh, famous instance of that was with the Pancho Villa expedition in 1916. And we had tens of thousands of regular U.S. Army troops stationed inside northern Mexico for almost a year. Uh, that was under General Pershing, who would go on to lead U.S. forces in World War One in Europe. And the idea then was that if Mexico could not... Um, could not exercise control over its territory or was unwilling to do so, then the United States would. And the reason that we came to that conclusion is because the communities on the border were being attacked by Mexican bandits, by Pancho Villa, and other groups of bandits during this time. This was during the Mexican Revolution. And the central government in Mexico had little to no control over the northern territories of the country. So the border was on the south side of the Rio Grande, was this lawless place where bandits and rebel groups were essentially uh, roaming at will and occasionally would cross into the United States and raid towns and steal goods and would kill American citizens. So we took it upon ourselves to impose order. Now, I don't think anybody is arguing that we should return to that policy, but the idea that Mexico can somehow solve this crisis on its own or that Mexico can totally exert control over the northern border has never been true. Back in the early 20th century, it was these rebel groups, and today it's cartel organizations and smuggling rings. But it's the, 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 the dynamic is the same. Okay, so what you're sharing is really important for us to kind of, we have to, we have to chew on that, like it could, because that is not something we're hearing on our regular news it's not something that's really being discussed, like what you just said, that they've never been able to control it, that they are currently unable to control it. They haven't been trying. Now they're actually trying a little bit because of the tariff threat, but that the chance of them actually locking it down and maintaining it from their side is pretty slim. I kind of go back to what you said at first. You said, you know, we're not suggesting that we do that again. I, I kind of am. And and I'm not really out on on the reservation by myself, John. Like I'm not, I'm not out here, you know, with a tinfoil hat on, going. We should send troops down there. I've been suggesting for almost a year now that we build a military base at our southern border and station a bunch of troops because we've pulled a bunch back home through to base realignment and closure operations that have been ongoing for the past uh, almost 15 years. Um, so we have the manpower. We certainly have an unlimited budget with the with the defense spending that we just authorized under President Trump, there's enough money to put a base there for sure. Um, what, what, is the, what is the rationale for not doing that? Well, I, I think what we need to think about doing realistically is, is a more close partnership, a closer partnership with Mexico. We just had the Department of Homeland Security send about 80 agents and investigators to Guatemala to work with Guatemala Security Services to track down and shut down smuggling networks in that country. 
we could do the same thing in partnership with Mexico, in partnership with the Mexican Navy, with the uh, Mexican Army, uh, and really concentrate on northern Mexico and on rooting out these smuggling networks and these criminal rings that are profiting off the migrant crisis. But we've got to do it in cooperation, not just with Mexico kind of writ large, but with specific institutions in Mexico that are not as susceptible to corruption and to being bought off by cartels as, as uh, say, the local police or the federal police. And certainly this idea that the national Mexican National Guard, which was year, thousand National Guardsmen down to the Mexican-Guatemalan border is going to solve is a thing. Uh, you could have confidence in the Mexican National Guard. You're talking about a country in which major institutions, including some branches of the military, have long been corrupted, where corruption goes to the highest levels of the, uh, of the government. We need to be smart about how we collaborate with Mexico, but we do need to collaborate with Mexico, and we do need to help them because they can't solve this problem on their own. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So you're saying it'd be much more cost effective instead of spending the dollars on building a base to just partner with them. But what about the designation of the, uh, so I, I accept that. I, I, I think you're an expert and I think your, your, uh, your response has merit there. I could give that some more thought about what is the most cost effective way of getting the goal accomplished, which is getting the border to much more semblance of being like we're a sovereign nation and so are they and we shouldn't have a wide open border. But what about, John, the uh, designation of the drug cartels as transnational terror organizations instead of just because right now they're designated as kind of like racketeering organizations, which allows us a certain amount of leeway in dealing with them. But if they were designated terror organizations, then that would open up whole new frontiers of options with our U.S. military coordinating with Border Patrol to eliminate these bad actors. Yeah, I mean, it would, all, it, it would, it would also open up new frontiers of us being able to collaborate with Mexican authorities, as I was just talking about. You know, we have these anti-terrorism partnerships all over the world um, as a result of, of changes uh, after 9-11. Uh, you know, in every corner of the world, actually, where the U.S. military partners with uh, local military forces and, and federal police forces in dozens and dozens of countries um, that have terrorist presences in them. Uh, so I think that, that the idea that, you know, we could do something similar with the cartels in northern Mexico and bring a lot more uh, resources to bear on that you know, partnering with, with, with Mexican military forces, there's some merit to that. I think that that's been suggested by Representative Chip Roy from Texas, among others, recently. And I think, you know, that that, uh, that, that could be one approach that, that might be effective, uh, you know, uh, among others. So I do you, like, do you have any insight into why it would take, so why wouldn't the president be moving on that? I understand the tariff threat has has made a huge difference, and that's finally some good news. But after two and a half years of wrangling with the Democrats to no avail, John, why wouldn't the president immediately go to that designation? Because that is something that is outside of Congress. It's outside of the courts. Um, it's well within his purview to do as commander in chief of the U.S. Armed Forces. And then it opens up these other avenues that you've described. Why not do it now? I think there's a failure of understanding on a fundamental level with the administration about what the problem is and and how how to get at it. Um, 
I, I think the administration is looking at this the way it looks at negotiations with other countries over trade disputes and tariffs and uh, and thinking that, you know, the threat of tariffs is going to make some lasting difference. The actions taken by Mexico are almost entirely window dressing. They're doing it to avoid tariffs, but there's no way that these things are sustainable or that there's any real strategy behind the deployment of National Guard troops or any of the other measures that Mexico has announced that they're going to sort of crack down, you know, on on the illegal immigration. Um, I don't know why there's a failure to understand what the problem is. There's another aspect of this that we haven't touched upon, and that is the fact that almost all of these uh, migrants from Central America who are claiming asylum are, in fact, economic migrants. They're coming here because, for whatever reason, they're, you know, their, their countries are um, impoverished, they have nothing, their farms or crops have failed, and they're coming north. But they're not uh, refugees or political asylees in the traditional sense. Uh, they're coming here to work. And there used to be a way that we could let people come here to work for jobs that were available, um, you know, and, and that they could be above board and legal. And that was the, it's called the Bracero Program during World War II. It went from 1942 to 1964, and it was shut down by labor unions who didn't want to compete with Mexican labor. We need some sort of 21st century Bracero Program so that the Central Americans most of whom are coming here to work, can do so in an above-board, regulated way, and we can actually control the flow of labor across the border and get them out of what is essentially a black market for labor right now. The administration hasn't shown any indication that it's aware that, that this is a problem with a solution. Uh, and uh, I don't know why. I don't know why that is. Well, you know, John, some of the comments by the president... Well, he does talk about the booming economy, and it seems like every time we announce a record number of jobs, we see an uptick in people trying to cross the border. They, you're right. I'm, I mean, we've been discussing this on this radio program from day one. These are economic migrants. If you are a true refugee, you go to the first country adjacent to your own home country because refugees, by their very nature, the definition, it's someone who intends on returning to their home country because they don't want to be a citizen of another country. They want to be back in their own home. And as soon as it's safe to do so, they want to go back and rebuild and start to reconstitute what they had before. These are economic migrants because they don't go to the first country adjacent to their own to find refuge or to find safety, they're traveling to the United States because there are jobs here. And because, you know, unfortunately, we've allowed upwards of maybe perhaps 40 million of them to come here. And I'm getting that number from the number of uh, reports now that the IRS is reporting again back to employers, the number of individuals who have a social security number that does not match their name and address. So in other words, it's fraudulent social security use from in the workplace is 49 million. Now, Admittedly, some of those would be Americans, but the majority of them would be people who are in the country illegally. That number flies in the face of the 11 million that's been forced down our throat for all these decades. And I think it's much more close to accuracy. And that number is exploding because of the current activity on the border. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like the president has a grip on what's going on. But then as you're explaining that, I'm like, well, I mean, does he really know about that? Like, do his advisors, like Stephen Miller is the expert here. Does he understand what you've just explained? I, I, I don't know. The fact is, though, based on everything that you just said, people in the United States, employers and businesses in the United States are hiring illegal immigrants. They have been for years and years and years. Uh, 
uh, and when the economy is booming here, when you have less than 4% unemployment, less than 3.5% unemployment in some parts of the country, there are a lot of jobs available that are only going to be filled by foreign labor. And U.S. employers, U.S. firms are hiring those people. The only reason a Central American farmer would sell his farm and sell everything he himself and his family and his children at great risk to hire smugglers and pay off cartels and corrupt officials and travel thousands of miles north to get into this country is if he knew with almost certainty that there would be a job for him here in this country. And a lot of the migrants I've talked to will not only say that they have a job lined up, that they know where they're going, they know where their contact is, they already have a job lined up, they already have relatives and family members here, they're coming here for work. And they're coming here for work because they're getting hired. And so we need to bring these people out of the shadows, we need to get them out of the black market for labor and into the mainstream, and so, so that we can regulate it like we do with everything else. So we can know who's coming here and who they're going to work for and who's hiring them. Um, you know, this is a huge, the, the illegal black market in labor uh, accounts for almost all illegal immigration, almost all of it. If we can get a handle on that, we can get a handle on the migrant crisis. So when you say bring them out of the shadows, because I'm, I'm honestly, any, any kind of, and this is, this is my opinion, John, I'm, just we're just talking here but in my opinion anything that that puts people on a path to citizenship after they've come here illegally just so they could work basically incentivizes more people to come so what do you mean when you say bringing them out of the shadows you don't have to put them on a path to citizenship you just need to know who they are who they're coming here to work for what the conditions of their employment is uh you know and uh, uh and know who they are uh, okay the idea is that people would be able to come here and work and send money home and be temporary employees on contract or seasonal employees, and then they could return home at the end of the season or at the end of their contract, and there could be a flow of labor that responds to demand, that responds to the U.S. economy. So the next time we have a big recession and the unemployment rate skyrockets up, we can, we can shut down. Uh, or reduce the number of, of contracts that we authorize. You know, mm-hmm. th- there's a way to regulate. Uh, and it, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be uh, better than what it is now. Which is oh, fantastic. Know, we, we used to do this, and, and we could do it again. And I agree with you, absolutely. Uh, John Davidson, thank you for the informa- informative talk and your time today. Senior correspondent at The Federalist. I'll post the link on Stacy on the right on Facebook. Thank you so much for being with us today. We'll be back with more after this. This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book Uncommon Marriage. The late Stephen Covey said, it's easy to let the urgent things of life crowd out the important things of life. And there is a difference between urgent and important. The good can be the enemy of the best. Sure, there are wonderful opportunities in life, like opportunities to do good with and for those around us. However, if we're not careful, those good opportunities can pile up and ultimately impinge on the truly critical priorities of our life, like our marriage. We all must safeguard against that. How? Go to God. 
The Bible says, cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. It doesn't get any simpler than that. There is a loving and all-knowing God ready to help. Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. Hi, this is Jim Stanley, General Manager of American Family Radio, here to tell you that change is on the air. Uh, Excuse me, Jim, I believe the saying would be, change is in the air? Well, that's true, too. We've got some big changes coming up, and you'll hear them on the air. Oh, right, boss. Go ahead. As I was saying, changes are coming, and you'll hear them on the air beginning Monday, June 24th, here on American Family Radio. So, do they affect me? I mean, are we cool here? I mean, we're cool, right? Pastor Joseph Parker. You know, obviously when things are going well, it's much easier to have an attitude of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. But even when things are going difficult, it's important to know too, there's never a time it's inappropriate for us to thank and praise God. Now some may ask, well, what about when you're going through difficult times, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death? We can have two different responses. We can worship or we can whine. Tune in to the Hour of Intercession, weekday afternoons at 1 Central on Urban Family Talk. I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. Congressional Democrats could find themselves voting indirectly to support the Hyde Amendment, a firewall which bars federal funding of abortions. The Hyde Amendment has become a flashpoint and litmus test for Democrats over the past few weeks. Former Vice President Joe Biden caught flack of late for supporting the Hyde Amendment, often built into a broader spending bill. The House is considering a multi-bill spending package for fiscal year 2020. The measure simultaneously tackles labor, health and human services, defense, state foreign operations, and energy and water programs. The Hyde Amendment is in in the labor HHS portion. There is no provision in order to strip out the Hyde Amendment. The House would simply renew the Hyde Amendment language, which has been around for decades when members approve the overall bill. In other words, some of the same pro-choice Democrats who have been critical of Biden and others for supporting the Hyde Amendment could tacitly find themselves backing the Hyde Amendment if they vote to approve the measure soon. There will be no direct up or down vote on the Hyde Amendment, but Democrats who have reservations with the Hyde Amendment in essence supported it if they vote yes on the overall combo spending bill. With the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Guatemala was considering a deal, a safe third country agreement, which would require Hondurans and Salvadorans to request asylum there. If they showed up at the U.S. border, they could legally be denied. Now President Trump is reporting that Guatemala is actually close to signing that deal. U.S. has also asked the same thing of Mexico, but they have so far refused. However, I got to tell you what is happening here in Mexico is light years compared to what it was seven months ago when uh, they were offering these migrants um, work permits, visas, health care, housing, um, when federal police were actually putting migrants on trucks going to the U.S. Now, what they are doing is they're checking buses like this, and you can't see it because this one's big, but all the buses and the public traffic, the taxis, they're checking them out, going aboard and checking everyone's papers, and if they are not in order, they will be deported. So the Mexico is now deploying about 6,000 National Guard, not just to checkpoints like this, not just along the river, which does offer some deterrent, but they're also going to choke points like uh, bus stations, truck stops, uh, going to the rail yards where migrants are basically going so they can thin out the number of people who are currently in the pipeline with the idea, of course, that fewer people will ultimately show up at the U.S. border, Texas, California, Arizona, and so forth. Welcome back to the program. I'm... (laughs) So I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy to hear they're finally doing something. But John Davidson, senior correspondent at The Federalist, during his interview last segment, he raised some very, very prescient concerns, things that 
we can't deny, we cannot deny that Mexico is a very poorly run country. And I, guys, so first let's, let's just, let's put a pin in it for just one second. When I say that Mexico is a very poorly run country, am I saying that because A, I'm a racist against Mexicans, B, I hate Mexico, the country, or C, because there are plenty of uh, data out there that prove to us that Mexico is a poorly run country. If you answered C, you are correct. A, people who answered A and B, go stand in the corner. And don't come back out until someone says, come out. And I I won't be there. So you'll be there for the rest of your life. This is not about me hating Mexico or hating Mexicans or Guatemalans or El Salvadorans or what are the other ones? Guatemala, Mexico, El Salvador, Honduras, Hondurans. I I don't hate any of these people. But their countries are poorly run. Now, they have some of the most beautiful countries on the planet. If you look at the images um, online of these of the, the beaches and coastlines of these countries, it's unbelievable. They also have crazy hot weather, like crazy hot. I get to complaining here in St. Louis. When it gets over 90, I just start, it's like the wailing wall has been unleashed and someone put me in charge and I've got the only microphone. I'm just like, oh, run into the air conditioning. I'm running to the pool. I just don't know what to do. Um, now I'm not like that when it's 90 degrees and I'm in Florida on vacation. So <laughs> figure that one out, but now we can take the pen back out and go back to the truth here. Um, and the truth about Mexico, they've had decades to clean up their country. They have millions of Mexicans living here in the United States who, if they wanted to, they could literally pack up with all of their wealth. They would not lose their American bank accounts or their American citizenship they could, because it, and it's adjacent. This isn't the same as saying people who are Nigerian Americans should go fix Nigeria, um, because that's quite a trek. Like you, you can you can fly back and forth to Nigeria, no problem. People do it, but when you live, you're literally driving distance from the country where you live that's well run and you love and is full of capitalism, and Mexico, which is just to the south. Now, true enough. We're talking about drug cartels and deeply entrenched, well-funded, bad actors, criminal organizations that should be designated as terrorist organizations for the havoc they're wreaking in our country. But can we just stop for one second and talk about how if, if La Raza was really a thing, if La Raza really cared about Mexico and Mexicans, they would organize for, they could have rotating groups of Mexican-Americans traveling to Mexico and making a difference. They could overthrow the government of Mexico. Do you understand how many tens of millions of Mexicans live here? Last census put their numbers at 18%. 18% of 300 million. And I'm not saying 324 right now because we know at least 20 to 30 million of that 324 are illegal aliens from south of this border. Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Mexico. So the 18% who are here lawfully, who hold American citizenship and can go back and forth to Mexico at will. And believe me, they do go to their Instagram accounts. I used to follow a couple of ladies, both of them of Mexican extraction, both of them Mexican-Americans. And they have every so often their pictures of them back in Mexico, visiting family, taking gifts, spending time, you know, Um, and the places that they're in, the, the background of the pictures doesn't look bad at all. 
there are parts of Mexico that are beautiful and, and well-maintained and like, you know, not scary. But it's not our southern border with them. Okay? So 18%. Let's think it through for a second. There are roughly 40 million and we're at 13%. So we're looking at more like 50, 52 million Mexicans. 52 million Mexicans. Now, let's take out the bottom, you know, bottom 20% and say just 80% of those Mexican Americans said, I'm sick of the negative reputation. I'm sick of this idea that Mexico is a pit. I'm sick of flying the flag on May the 5th on Cinco de Mayo and celebrating and acting like Mexico is a place I would ever go live. I'm not here cranking out the babies every other year and being an American, a Mexican American, as they call themselves, because Mexico is so great. I'm here because America is that great. And I don't want to go back down there and live, but I need to do something for my people because, you know, in Cinco de Mayo, it's all about Mexico. So why not? Why not do something about it? After all these decades, we know that the Mexican government's not going to do anything about it. And this is a problem. This, this isn't a situation where we're talking about occasionally we intermittently have, um, you know, some illegal immigration. No, we have it 24-7, a thousand folks a day um, dumped off into American cities. They have no place to go. And he did say, um, John did say that, you know, these people often have somewhere to go. They often have family that they're going to. But a lot of these people don't. So it's not every one of them that actually has a name and an address where they're going. And if you've ever been, so when, when I went down to, um, oh, let's see, where did I go? Oh, I went to, I was just in Tupelo for Sherathon and I flew through Dallas and I'm not kidding you. So I didn't ask. So this is just speculation, but there was this lady and I mean, she was so happy. It was like she was cartwheeling and she had this little girl with her that looked like she was from Honduras or El Salvador. And she, the little girl was clean. Her hair was cut and looked freshly cut. She, but just looking at her and how happy the woman was and the girl looked really hesitant. And she was just like, really like, not like American kids who look you dead in the face and either, you know, they either give you a look or they smile or they, you know, look at you and look away. Not, not like, not like kids that we see all the time that are Americans. This little girl was clearly out of her element and they were in the airport together and they were riding the, the train. You have to ride this rail system around the Dallas airport to get wherever you're going, uh, Love Field. And they were there together. And it occurred to me just in that moment, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is one of those kids who's coming over the border and is being placed with this lady. And she's so exuberant about it. But the little girl looks, seems kind of reticent, like, what, what's happening to me? And in that moment, I felt so much pity for the little girl. Because of all the stories I've heard about what's happening to these children on these journeys and how the kids are getting rented out and et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, oh, I hope she's not one of those ones. I hope she just, however she made it here, I hope she didn't have that experience. And then they got off at their stop and I kept on riding into my stop and I got off at my Seagate and went on, you know, and, and went on where, I, you know, back to where I was going. But I just think it is so crazy that none of these things are being discussed. It's almost as if we say, this is the situation and this is what we have to deal with and there's just no, there's no solution. We can't seal the border because of the Democrats and Republicans. We can't have Mexico seal the border because their government just, it's just, it's, it's worse than bad 
It's worse than ineffective. It's worse than doesn't work. And then you've got the designation for terrorist organization, which is so simple to do. And the president hasn't pulled the trigger. And full disclosure, maybe the reason he hasn't done that is because there's some other barrier that we don't know about the people who are suggesting this that we don't we're unaware of because we don't work for government we don't have the security clearance we don't you know we don't know what it takes to get that done maybe it does have to go through congress and that's why he's not doing it but i just i refuse to believe that there's no way to solve this other than saying everybody gets a work visa everybody gets to stay you know because that means this country will be mexico in another 20 years or so at this rate their birth rate is far higher than Americans. And, and for those who are listening in the audience who happen to be permanently tan like me, if you have any issues that you think the black community should be addressing and you want to get a legislator to help with it, whether it's lowering taxes or enterprise zones or, or getting the federal government out of education, good luck getting a legislator to have anything to do with you or listen to you at all when blacks are at 13.8% of the population and legalizing all of these illegal aliens will put Mexicans at like, 40%. I mean, are you paying any attention to what's happening here? And no, I'm not afraid of Mexicans. I'm not xenophobic in the least. But if you look at the immigration from all of these different countries, we have the highest level of Muslims living in any other country that's not a Muslim majority nation, the United States. Highest level of Chinese Americans living outside of China, United States. Highest number of El Salvadorians here, America. Highest number of Mexicans, the Mexican concentration of immigrants anywhere on this planet, the highest number is here in the United States. You, if you want to live with more Mexicans than you do in the United States, you got to go to Mexico and go on down the line. Everybody's getting in. And so you might be one of those people, I meet them sometimes, and they're like, I'm fine with people coming in. America is a big welcoming place and we'll assimilate them and they will become Americans and that is all. Okay, if that's what you think is happening. So if that's what's happening, what are all of these places where you go there and nobody speaks English? What is all this garbage with me going out to the the Walmart out in, in Chesterfield and them asking me if I want English or, 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 or Spanish? Why are they asking me that if people are assimilating? Why are uh, immigrants, I don't know if they're legal or unlawful, I don't know who these people are yelling at me in the parking lot in Spanish. Why are, why are these people doing that if they've assimilated? Why didn't she just throw me the chin like every other American does when I'm walking around the Walmart? What is up with that? So this isn't about fear. It's about some folks aren't assimilating. Look at their behavior. Look at the dominance of MS-13. That's not an American thing. Well, some of those MS-13 members are Americans. They're temporary Americans. They should be deported. They should have their citizenship stripped and they should be deported. Yeah, I said it. You're not a natural born citizen. You can't come over here and cut people's heads off with machetes and still be an American. That's the way it's supposed to work. Either assimilate or get out. There's nothing to be sorry about. There's nothing to, there's no fear involved. I don't know if you're looking, if you, if you don't believe me, if the sound of my voice doesn't sound unafraid, you can go to the live stream on Facebook or YouTube. You can look at my face, look at my face. I'm not afraid. I'm not, there's nothing over here that's xenophobic at all. I like being friends with everybody. I like the fact that we have such a beautiful culture here that welcomes anyone from anywhere. You want to be an American, bring it on in, but bring it on in legally. Bring it in here legally. 
Nobody's playing with you. Nobody, this, is, this is real stuff that we have going on here. So we will be getting to um, this poll that shows Ocasio-Cortez has a terrible approving, approval rating in her own district. I will touch on her comments about um, the, the whole, you know, she's comparing Donald Trump to his behavior to the, that of the Holocaust. So spurious, so absolutely unsupportable. And because I've been asked, I will just say briefly about the Kyle Kashev thing with him getting accepted to Harvard. So you know that in order to get accepted to Harvard, you have to have a 4.0. They have 45,000 or so applications a year, and they accept 4% of that because, you know, the school is only so big, they can only accept so many incoming freshmen. So it's highly competitive. And one of the ways that obviously celebrities, kids who have a 4.0 can get in, it's, you know, it's, 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 they do a balancing act. They have a mix of celebrities and the children of important people, legacy admissions, and then, of course, people from every walk of life, poverty-stricken individuals who are on scholarship 100%, but they have that 4.0 and their SAT is 1550. You, you, you see what I'm saying. So Kyle Kashev is one of those people who has the grades to get into Harvard. But when he was 16, he had some uh, unfortunate racially charged comments that he made on some Google Docs. And his enemies have saved those Google Docs and they sent them over to Harvard to get his admission rescinded. And so Harvard has done so. And so on the one hand, you have David Hogg, who's a, who's, he, he's actually a brain dead nincompoop. He's going to go to Harvard in the fall. But out of all the stuff that David Hogg has said, and I've disagreed with every bit of it, every syllable, every written typed letter, every bit of it, he's never been racially charged or anti-Semitic that we know of. And so people are really upset about Kyle Kashev, and I think he's a great kid. God can use this to work it out for his greater good. He's obviously not going to Harvard. If you feel it's a double standard, you may or may not be right. But I'm, I'm not willing to spend a lot of time and my energy getting all head up over it because there are just such bigger fish to fry. Um, I really think he's going to end up going to a great school anyway. And so I'm not, I'm not worried about Kyle. I think he's going to be all right. All right, if you're leaving us now, God bless from the heartland. If you're sticking around, we have more Stacey on the right up next.